0: Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyric Hughes-Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView and your host today, Wednesday, August 25th, 2021. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. If you'd like to subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, please visit our website, and if you can, support us on Patreon and Substack. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and all of the usual places. My guest today is an old friend and a true iconoclast, Albert Brisson. When we met maybe 20 years ago now, when peak oil was all the rage, he shocked me by saying that the earth had abundant coal energy and most of what is now called sustainable energy – might be more expensive to develop and deploy than we anticipated. Later, he contributed to the book my husband and I wrote, What's Next for Yale University Press. I soon discovered that all his points were meticulously researched. He changed my mind. Dr. Brisson is an academic with a previous career in international relations, policymaking, and the energy business. He's presently Professor Emeritus of Energy and International Governance at University College London and Senior Fellow at the Columbia Center on Sustainable Investment, Columbia Law School, Earth Institute, where he previously was Executive Director of Columbia University's Center for Energy, Marine Transportation, and Public Policy, and Professor of Practice in International and Public Affairs. In the 2000s, Dr. Bresson headed the Global Business Environment Department in Royal Dutch Shell's London headquarters, where he oversaw development of Shell's fabled global scenarios on the changing international and societal landscape. He served it for eight years as special advisor to the EU commissioner in charge of energy and as economic advisor to the Minister of Foreign Affairs of France and held key positions with the French Institute for International Relations and the World Bank. Dr. Brisson earned advanced degrees in mathematics and engineering at École Polytechnique in Paris and Université Sorbonne, and a PhD in political economy economy and government at the Kennedy School of Government. And that's not all of his CV, which is posted on the EconView website in full. Albert, welcome to the Hale Report. Uh, I know you're not in Paris right now. Where are you calling in from?
1: Well, I, I wish I could say from the space station or, or the far side of the moon, but it's, it's just the Massif central, you know, these uh, old uh, mountains in the center of France.
0: It sounds lovely in August to be there. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I know we're doing this as a phone call so that we can um, overcome our the digital divide of the central massif and um, be <laughs> yes. able to talk to you today. Well, you know, if you've listened to our other podcasts, you know that I always start out by asking my guests, what was it that inspired them to follow their chosen specialty? But you've told me that your background proves that you are not a specialist, but rather someone who defies categorization. So instead, I'm going to ask you what prevented you from being a narrowly focused technocrat and made you see the world through such a wide lens?
1: Well, uh, Leary, first of all, it, it's great to be uh, here with uh, your audience uh, and uh, you know a lot of great people. It's it's not um, uh, so much um, my, the real myself, you know, defining specialization. I think it's the world around us uh, that uh, defy, defy, defies defies uh, specialization. We organize our knowledge into uh, disciplines. But the world is not organized into disciplines. A lot of things happen around us uh, that do not fit nicely into our knowledge uh, niches. So my my effort has been to look at the organic side of the, the world around us and uh, what are the unexpected aspects of this uh, unca- encounter of uh, very different uh, different uh, dimensions.
0: So you're a specialist in non-specialization, then.
1: Well, uh, you are using a term which uh, actually is a term by Conrad uh, Lawrence, you know, the, the the guy who invented ethology, the the science of behaviors. I think he, he, he realized that uh, behaviors, uh, you know, we are not homo economicus; we we are not uh, um, uh, people in a given uh, uh, discipline. And uh, yes, He basically said we we have to be curious. Curiosity is an essential uh, quality of the human mind. And to be fully curious, we have to be specialist in non-specialization. So that's what I've tried to do. It doesn't mean you you should not know a number of uh, disciplines. And I I was lucky that, uh, you know, in France, I could uh, study at uh, Polytechnique, which is a school of poly, uh, various disciplines. You do a bit of, uh, you know, quantum physics, but also a a bit of philosophy, a bit of, uh, uh, you know, topology. And you you try to get a sense of how these various disciplines uh, look at the world, Uh, and then you try to, you know, uh, define your own path uh, through them and uh, to be very alert to the moments when you have to submit and defer to someone who is in one of these disciplines because, you know, there are problems that end up uh, there, but the big picture does not. The big picture belongs in a space of its own, of its own which is much more organic than uh, organized by tools.
0: Yeah, I mentioned, Albert, I mentioned in my introduction that you were one of the developers of scenario planning at Royal Dutch Shell. That's something that the company is quite well known for. Um, What is the difference between scenario planning and strategic planning, and how did that work out at Shell? Well,
1: that's an essential uh, difference, and I'll come back to that. But, you know, first of all, uh, scenarios uh, are about trying to think the unthinkable, and they were really invented not by Shell but by Herman Kahn in the late 1940s, and this was to try to think about what could happen um, in in a nuclear war, and this prospect of a nuclear war is so threatening that that people actually could not really think of it, and and Herman Kahn uh, came up with uh, you know this notion that if you try to consider several futures at the same time then you are more comfortable dealing with any of them because then you, you know that there are other futures. So having said that, I think the answer to your question about uh, strategy planning and, and uh, scenario planning uh, is that they are profoundly different. It is very important that your view of the context, your view of the world is not predicated on the sort of strategy that uh, you know you want to deploy or the resources uh, have so at shell for example uh, they had very they had two very distinct roles one of my colleagues was the head of strategy and I, I was really the guy in charge of trying to figure out you know what what the various futures in which uh, this strategy would play out uh, could be
0: so in other words the scenarios
1: Yes, the scenarios are one way of doing it. And Shell, uh, Pierre Pierre Vac, a French person, had uh, developed this like 20 or 30 years ago. Now, in fairness, when I I came to Shell, the the scenario methodology was in place, but it it had become a a little uh, uh, complacent. Uh, People had turned it into a sort of what they call an exploratory journey. It had become a supply-driven journey um, process in which the, the whole emphasis was on having a group of uh, gifted people and uh, experts they could consult, um, you know, brainstorm and come up with uh, you know, views as part of their explore, uh, exploratory journey.
0: So it's really the difference between uh, the future you want uh, versus the future that might occur.
1: Yes, uh, you know. For example, Shell ended up for five in five rounds of Sinai. They were always describing the same two worlds: one in which uh, uh, you know the business would prevail. They 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 called it uh, Tina, There is no alternative, you know, and uh, or just do it and. Uh, so they, they conceived of a world where, you know, the logic of business and the market would prevail. And then, of course, there was this other world where there were some forms of uh, resistance in society or in countries. But uh, I, I thought this, this is a very poor approach to, you know, uh, uh, charting, uh, trying to think about the future. For, first of all, you are never in a pure world. You are never in a world where everything is deregulated and market uh, fully prevails. Actually, markets need rules and all that. And you are never in a world in which there is uh, you know, people are defined only by uh, resistance. And, uh, so so my my, my first uh, effort was to redefine the, the logic of scenarios around trade-offs. Like, like in economics, you know, we know... Uh, even if you like a caviar, <laughs> you, <laughs> you cannot live on, on caviar. You also need, uh, you know, uh, bread and, and 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 sports and and education. And so, so I I found that uh, you know Shell had forgotten a, a bit about this, and also I I found that strangely Shell had come to neglect the role of government. And when you are an uh, international oil company. Actually, the first thing you do is you deal with governments. You you need a license to operate in a given country, and so you know the, the politics, geopolitics of it is, is much more important than business versus resistance scenarios. Uh, Maybe so, I I try uh, to develop a, uh, a, a methodology for scenarios that would not leave out some of the essential dimensions. And I also tried to to go beyond the notion of just a couple of scenarios and to show that there is a continuum, you know, and and you must be able to uh, think of worlds that will be in between your various scenarios. So, So, you know, broadly speaking, this is what I tried to bring to show.
0: So the military is all about strategy and tactics and scenarios. And I remember um, almost 10 years ago, we attended a dinner and General, at that, po- at that time, General McChrystal was talking about how that kind of thinking was developed by the U.S. military. And I remember that you were quite struck by his, his story. Um, do you remember what he said?
1: Yes, well, I, I was very impressed. Like we, we it was a, a, kindly invited me, and David Hale kindly invited me to this um, CFR uh, dinner. And General McChrystal was describing how, in just a matter of years, he and and people working with him had totally redesigned the way you know, the, the special forces would operate. Instead of having to plan for two weeks, uh, they they were able to do, you know, a number of, several operations at at night on a very short notice. And so on one side, this was very, very impressive from a a military standpoint. But on the other side, listening to him, uh, I I was feeling, uh, you know, this is about winning battles. What about, you know, winning a war? And as we can see today in Afghanistan or as we could see in Iraq, uh, of course a war is not just about you know, military operations a war is about uh, you know willingness to to fight first of all we had a very telling uh, lesson recently so this is also I think an example where you have to to look well beyond Given discipline, and and you have to try to find uh, you know organic uh, um, organic uh, sort of organic momentum that can carry the day by bringing people, you know, not just military success, but what they really look for in life. That's a very very different undertaking.
0: That's right. Well, you're so well-known for your work in the energy field, and that has driven so much of development over the past 100 years and is perhaps energy is the most global sector of all. You've written that a narrow focus on non-carbon fuels might compromise best outcomes for climate change overall. Do you think we're prisoners of net zero?
1: (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I, am, I am very concerned that net zero or, or before that renewable, uh, you know, had, had become uh, a, a move from the analytical side to becoming uh, slogans, uh, and we have to be very careful. We, you know, we think we think there is the world, and then we have a discourse around this world that reflects it. But in fact, as Foucault and others have shown, you know. The, the the discourse itself is a construction, and uh, I think in energy we are not paying enough attention to how our discourses are, are biased and uh, how they are uh, they may preempt uh, reaching the goals you know very very uh, goals that I, you know I very much share. Um, take a very simple one. Everybody will tell you we need renewable energy. Now, anybody who has studied thermodynamics for at least two hours knows that there is no such thing as renewable energy. So, what people mean when they say renewable energy, wind and sun, they mean actually an energy that is delivered through a flow. And this flow, we hope, will renew itself, will continue, but the wind does not renew itself. There just happen to be forces that, you know, generate this this wind. But there is no such thing in the world as a renewable energy, principle number two of thermodynamics. And similarly, uh, you know, net zero creates this wrong impression that if we achieve it, we are done. Oh, absolutely not! You know, net zero should we really be for 500 ppm or 600 ppm? Net zero is the, the, the is no longer adding carbon into the atmosphere, but the the, the carbon that is already there will remain. So what we call net zero, you know, sounds uh, fantastic because they, we have become pure. We live uh, the the life that should be lived for the, the planet, but actually we are we are not solving anything about the the carbon that was uh, emitted in in the past. And the minute you talk with uh, you know the green the green community about removing that carbon, etc., you you get. Very strong cultural resistance because they, they think, oh, but if you begin to talk about removing carbon, you know, except of course you do it through the, the trees because trees are very, you know, politically correct. But a, any other way of removing carbon uh, will just incentivize uh, people to emit more, which you know uh, is a, is a very rough view of uh, how. Behaviors actually uh, develop, so so I'm very concerned. You know, in in uh, this energy climate field, when we say energy today, we really mean energy and climate and environment. That we we have become prisoners of terms uh, that that are not you know uh, that are not uh, properly uh, defined. And we are becoming prisoners of our own discourse. And this indeed may lead to a major, major uh, uh, disappointment uh, when the time uh, comes.
0: So the discourse, in order to reach a solution, what you're saying is we need to think about things not in emotional terms or moral terms, but in realistic terms and come up with a solution in that way.
1: Yes, uh, absolutely, and, and we have to be you know, very conscious that the work that we create uh, are not just uh, labels uh, we put on things that exist. They by themselves create things. Um, I, I, you know, every year, uh, some, one of the best uh, description of where we are in terms of carbon uh, emission is the, the work by the energy vendor in, in Germany. Oh, I have a lot of respect for their work, but but these Germans are totally prisoners of their own view of, notably the, the nuclear uh, industry, which they they oppose, although it's you know zero, zero emission. Uh, and therefore, they use the term "fossil energy" to describe at the same time oil, gas, coal, and nuclear. This is this is terrible because first of all, you know, uh, uranium is not a fossil. But even leaving that uh, side, uh, even leaving the difference between fossil and mineral uh, side, the notion that you have that one discursive category which you call fossil and then you decide that you want a non-fossile energy system, this is predicated on a way to organize knowledge uh, that does not reflect the, you know, the, the reality, that reflects uh, what the emotions uh, of people. They are, you know, they are very honorable uh, emotions, but this is a very emotional way of trying to you know, define uh, a policy, and it leads to huge inefficiency. You know, just think for a minute, if, if the Germans had first moved out of coal and then of nuclear, instead of, you know, being at 400 uh, uh, kilograms of, of CO2 per you know, uh, megawatt hour, they, they would be at, uh, you know, like France at 60 or 70. They, they would be 20 or 30 years ahead in their transition, climate-wise, if they had not become prisoners of, of, of their uh, discourse. So, so, yes, this is, this is why I'm uh, really worried about the very good things that we are trying to do uh, today. Not, not, not that I'm uh, against it in any way, but I, I think we have become prisoners of our own world and prisoners of our emotions.
0: So in addition to the digital divide that we know exists in the world and maybe in the mountains of France, (laughs) I don't know, but is there there also a carbon divide? You know, while Europe is spending a trillion dollars on carbon neutrality, and they have the money to do that in the first world, Bangladesh is building 23 coal-fired stations using Australian raw materials simultaneously. How does this get resolved?
1: This this is um, indeed um, you know another very important part of my my worries, which is that in Europe, and I think it's probably a bit similar in you know some of the the in the, in the US. Although in the US you have uh, you know a political situation that uh, that is far less uh, <laughs> far less consensual. Uh, to put it uh, nicely, than than, uh, we have in Europe. In Europe, there is a consensus about um, the energy and climate transition. And because this is expressed in moral terms, this is the right thing to do, this is the good thing to do, as opposed to the evil of what was done before, Uh, Europeans uh, tend to assume that moral imperative will apply across the board. They are Kantian, you know. Mm -hmm. Europe is not Kantian. The world around Europe is Machiavellian at best, or Hobbesian, you know. If if you are in in Bangladesh, um, you have these operators uh, who who are basically thinking, with one hand, we can take the money that Europe and and, uh, the Western countries and the UN are, are providing for the transition, and with the other hand, uh, you know, we, we can actually build these 26 uh, coal-fired power stations that Bangladesh is, is uh, building. And they, this is Machiavellian. They are, they are not thinking in terms of a global moral imperative that, that should govern all behaviors worldwide. They, they are just, you know, playing their cards in, in the best way they can to, the, the you know, Maximize immediate
0: advantage. It sounds very, very politically cynical. <laughs> um, in the same vein, you know, what do you think about this push towards electric vehicles? In this case, not just in Europe and the U.S., but also in China. And is there a danger behind this movement to electrify all sources of energy? What are the the, the weaknesses of that approach?
1: You, you had a very good. Podcast uh, on on this uh, the electric vehicle showing some of the, the you know the, uh, the, the the misgivings and and some of the you know the forgotten dimensions of it. So uh, I think this podcast already um, can you remind me? Uh, uh,
0: Joe Atikian, yeah, talked about electric and self driving. Yeah, he has yes, yes, grave concerns. It, right, self
1: driving. Uh, actually, you know, so, sorry, but but they, it is. There is something similar to what um, what he, he was saying in terms of you know assuming that uh, the technology will fall in place, uh, the, the, the networks and all. But I think there is another dimension, and dimension is that you cannot and should not make a whole economy and I would really say the whole society dependent on one single type of energy. You know, the day the day we have electrified everything, yes, uh, we probably will have uh, reduced carbon emission. Uh, at least if uh, the Germans end up closing their coal plants and, and then the Bangladeshis and also. But at least we will be on the path where it is thinkable to greatly reduce emissions and the net zero and so. But but then you know, if you think of the colonial pipeline example among many many others. You can see that all these networks are amenable to uh, hacking and to run somewhere, and, and and quite simply to, you know, catastrophic uh, um, flooding or or, or, or um, hurricanes. So 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 we will we will make the whole society dependent on one single type of energy and one single set of networks. And this, this, I think, is is a huge vulnerability. And so, maybe in twenty, thirty years, somebody would say, "How stupid could they be? You know, to, <laughs> to bet the farm on one single uh, uh, one single resource or way of doing things that, that backfired." Right. You need, you know, with, people people do not see clearly the the borderline between the micro and the macro or the the micro the meso and and, and the macro of course if i albert and you lyric we, we change for an electric car at the micro level we have reduced emissions a little but the notion that the macro society would be better off if everybody did that same little micro-thing, totally forgets about the systemic dimensions. It totally forgets about the the sources of vulnerability, uh, what happens if there's a war, a civil war, a major major strike or or a major natural event that suddenly um, takes this away from, from you. So, so it is a basic notion of risk management that you need a, a variety of instruments and you need um, and you need also to be um, looking for the word redundant you need redundancy but but this move to electrify also comes with a need to reduce uh, energy uh, production and consumption to to the bare bones this is this is not healthy. In terms of I mean, the overall safety
0: of the macro system, well, you know things do develop with multiple incentives and on multiple networks, in uh, not multiple networks. For example, when the u s moved much of its manufacturing supply chains to China, not only did the uh, companies benefit from lower labor costs, they also benefited from China's lower lower standards in terms of pollution. So as the EPA became stronger, there was much more of an incentive to move manufacturing outside of the U.S. And now that China has risen to the levels that it has, um, they could, and they're saying that they're going to achieve net zero, but they could simultaneously, as you've mentioned, um, uh, be deforesting the Amazon in order to accomplish that. So it's not a simple country-by-country country analysis that you need to make. It's it's an interconnected network world. And what do you think about China's place in this in the network?
1: I, I think you know the, your point. You know fully illustrates the the difference between optimizing from a micro perspective to optimizing from an overall macro uh, perspective. And uh, the, the green community is, um, you know, has its own view of how the planet uh, would come together, and and they have their own priority of issues, and this totally neglects that you know the real world does not come to you in, in the manner you have decided. The real world comes to you in. Uh, in a very unpredictable um, and, 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 and very complex uh, fashion. You, you mentioned the, the Amazon. Uh, China is planting as many trees as it can on its own territory to protect its soil, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, because they are getting uh, you know, richer, they, their consumption patterns are changing, they need soybeans, they need the cattle, and this is why they are funding the, the soybean train in uh, the Amazon. And we are at the stage where the systemic uh, effects are becoming far more important than the immediate effects. The Amazon forest, uh, I, I read recently, is probably now emitting more carbon, you know, through the burning and all this than it is uh, absorbing. So, so the, I think the big danger there, and I'll come to China, but I think the big danger is... Uh, for people with a cause, the the greens, and you know, I, I fully support their, their goals and their values. But the danger is for them to assume that the moral dimension that are uh, that on which their strategies are predicated will impose themselves across the world, uh, and, and because this is just not the case. Uh, China, first of all, you know, it, is a, is a communist country, uh, no, capitalist communist country. We uh, can see, but the the communist countries have in common that they were very very inefficient in the use of resources and energy. When Eastern Europe moved from the Soviet bloc to the EU bloc. One thing that happened was a massive uh, decrease in their energy consumption and in their uh, emissions. So, first of all, uh, China has a lot of catch up to do on on, uh, on, on this account. Uh, it, it has embarked in it. It is now, you know, gradually converging towards a Western uh, standard, but it it is still far from it. A, a Chinese person is, I think, uh, you know, speaking uh, roughly, is about uh, only twice as rich as a European or, or, or a French person. But it is emitting a little more. So so they are still very inefficient on this. And the notion that they would be at net zero you know, at, at a time that they have not uh, you know, very clearly defined, maybe 2060, uh, this is part of a discourse again, in which the other part of the discourse and the more important one is that they want to be let free to continue significantly increasing their emissions into the 2030s. Right. They mm-hmm. say now it might be the early 2030s, but but they are with one hand you know increasing very significantly their emissions and then they're also saying, no, oh, at some point we'll do the Net Zero uh, you know, Macarena like uh, everybody else. But, uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm very uncomfortable with this sort
0: of thing. Right. So how does this all, is, in other words, um, all of these things that people would like to achieve, like Net Zero, in some sense you could say we can't afford not to try to do this. But in another sense, this is all costing a lot of money. And how do you see it impacting prices? And especially prices in third world countries. Could it have a very negative effect there while improving conditions in first world countries? Are we able to make that distinction? Is inflation going to haunt us? And is, is energy going to be, as it has been in the past, a significant input of inflation?
1: Well, anyway, I, I think you're putting your, your finger on uh, one uh, significant source of inflation, and, and this is the inefficient manner. In which the net zero objective is uh, transforming climate policies. Even a you know a very basic student in, in in economics know that if you want to optimize a system, the way to do it is not right. to optimize separately every single uh, bit of it, right? Uh, you know if you want the world to reduce its emissions in the most efficient manner, you will ask the countries where you know, the, the reduction in emissions can be done at the lowest cost to move faster than those where it is very expensive,
0: Correct.
1: and the net zero objective totally ignores this basic economic uh, rule uh, because it, it it turns it into um, a moral it turns it into a moral requirement to become a net zero emitter. And nobody could care less whether you know uh, this or that person, or this or that company, or, or this or that country is net zero. The only thing that matters is how much the world has already in the meeting. Now, initially, you know, tw- about twenty years ago. There was an effort to address this uh, systemic economic dimension of resource allocation through what was called the the, the CDM, the Clean Development Mechanism. So a country uh, could pay another country to decrease its emissions as a way to meeting its own national objectives. Very simply, you know, the Germans gave a lot of money to China uh, for the sake of having China reduce its emissions as a way for the German companies to meet their own requirements. It turned out that this did not work. It's, it's a perfect, perfectly you know, reasonable economic mechanism, but in practice, what happened was that China developed, uh, and, and a few other countries, developed a whole cottage industry of you know companies, the only business of which was to absorb you know uh, uh, CDM money from uh, the, the other countries, uh, and then they, they, they would dismantle uh, you know a factory, rebuild it a little uh, uh, in, in a slightly different uh, place, and 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 come again. So 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 this this sort of one world uh, first best uh, scenario did not work. And instead, now, we we have something that is becoming a straitjacket in which every country wants to be net zero. Within each country, you are asking now companies or sectors to themselves become net zero. So you are basically forgetting the whole notion of uh, um, uh, optimizing a system. And this, to come back to your you know, key question, this is, of course, a source of inflation because it means that we are becoming inefficient in
0: resource allocation. So actually, this seems like a fool's errand, in fact, and not a very efficient system that we're developing. What could stop this train from the path that it's currently on? What kind of solutions could come about to change this? the inefficiencies that you're describing?
1: Well, um, There are are two things. The the first one is um, to move from a moral approach to an analytical economic approach where you actually measure things. And if you measure things and you measure at what cost they come, there are things that you should then uh, do and things you should stop doing. The notion that net zero is a universal objective that must be reached at basically any level that you look at is uh, is predicated on a confusion between the, the moral dimension of living a good life uh, in harmony with you know your environment and the analytical uh, physical economic dimension of reducing uh, carbon. Uh, as fast as possible. The second thing is, uh, to, and it's slightly different from the inefficiency, but it it also has its roots in the the moral approach, is to realize that we are dealing with a type of pollution that does not disappear the minute you stop to emit. The the carbon that is up in the air is there for several uh, centuries. And, Having putting the world on net zero would have been a very, very effective. I'm not saying efficient, I'm saying now effective, a very effective way of dealing with climate back in the 1990s when we were still at a relatively acceptable level of uh, CO2 concentration in the air. But now that we are at 420 uh, ppm and counting, uh, you know, net zero in itself. Will uh, limit new damage, but will not uh, eliminate the the, the fundamental, uh, uh, the fundamental climate, uh, um, the fundamental source of climate change. And it can also be, as we see, that there there are now a lot of um, self feeding loops at work, like. you know, the unfrozen of the permafrost and and the release of methane from uh, uh, previously frozen uh, the ground and from the, the deeper seas, that that will turn it into uh, you know, a very, very detrimental spiral.
0: What you're describing sounds very inefficient and also very dependent on cooperation. And are we going to see this international cooperation going forward How do you see net zero, for example, affecting global geopolitics over the next 20, 30, 40 years if what you're describing actually takes place?
1: Well, uh, again, I I think the the notion that net zero is the solution is misleading to to begin with. As said, uh, by net zero, you are you think you're no longer adding to the problem but there may be loops in the system around us that keep uh, this this um you know that that keep making things uh, worse so so first of all we we, we need to revise uh, our basic vocabulary to talk about these things and second um no, I, I live part of my life in Paris, but I think Paris has become uh, ideologized. And now I mean the Paris Agreement. Right. We, we, we have this, this agreement, which very few people understand, and I'm going to, to speak about this in a second. And they think that if in their little corner of the world they do what Paris uh, <laughs> requires them to do, uh you know we are on, on the good track. And and this does not work. And this is you know I'm coming to your question about cooperation. Uh, most uh, the green people in the West have never taken the time to to read the NDCs, which means nationally determined contribution. So this is not an obligation, it's a contribution. And the very important words, two words out of three are you say nationally determined. We do what we want. So the, the NBC from Russia, for example, has written nothing about energy, oil and gas. Or the, the NBC from Russia simply says, we in Russia will bring a contribution to fighting climate change through the development of our forests. That's the only thing in it. the only measure. And first of all, you know, uh, forestation is something that would happen in Russia as a consequence of uh, climate change. Because we have all these uh, cold lands. So if we we are in a warmer world, in theory, forests would develop in Russia. So basically they are not doing nothing. (laughs) And second, as we can see, as we speak today in Yakutia, the whole forests are burning. And, and Russia does not seem to care a lot about it either. So, you know, this is what Paris is about. This is Paris, uh, you know, the Paris was the French diplomatic answer to the failure of Copenhagen. In Copenhagen, the Europeans had gone in with a top-down uh, view, you know, that's very rational, except nobody bought it. The view was, okay, we, they, this is the global carbon budget. This is how much each country kind of should emit. Let's agree on doing it, and you know, let's agree on a on set of national targets which, added together, fit this budget. This was a total failure, and Connie Heidegger, which would never have become uh, you know, the commissioner for uh, environment, because she failed miserably at Copenhagen, Connie Heidegger was not even in the room when Barack Obama gathered 20 leaders to come up with the Copenhagen Agreement. The French understood that. And this was the only uh, international meeting of significance for François Hollande, and he wanted the success. And he understood that to reach success, he was actually to abide by this Copenhagen um, Accord. And the Copenhagen Accord basically said each country, as, as drafted by Obama and the 20 non-Europeans in the room, each country will do what it can. And nobody will impose anything on any country, but we hope that gradually uh, we will move in the same direction. So the, the, the French through this notion of NDC, nationally determined contribution, brought, you know, uh, I was going to say, brought the wolf into the, (laughs) the, 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 the the house. No, but they, they brought the national sovereignty principle at the pinnacle of the agreement. And then they came up with, you know, relatively smart devices, like the, the five-year stock taking and uh, uh, these, um, you know, these, uh, five-yearly uh, reassessment of objectives that could lead in the right direction but Paris fundamentally you know uh, does not create an instrument for achieving a cooperated agreed um, goal uh, and the 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 temperature uh, targets that are in it are not binding
0: so really there's nothing in place that is binding and the whole process is pretty shambolic and there really aren't, there's, there's no enforcement. Um, where how are we going to know? It sounds like the, the frog is slowly boiling in the pot. Um, how are we going to know when the real crisis point has been met? And do you see a way out of that crisis?
1: Well, you know we were talking about scenarios, and and so maybe let let me conclude on uh, what I see as the scenario that nobody wants to look at because it does not fit uh, you know the present uh, uh, largely uh, moral or maybe ideological perspective on on climate change. In, in 10 or 15 or 20 years, we are going to face a, a real, a real uh, collapse in some key uh, climate and weather systems. And just like Herman Kahn, uh, you know, helped think about what a nuclear would mean at a time when people were terrified about it, we need to consider what will happen when this climatic collapse will be, you know, at hand. And it is, you know, in in the present uh, green discourse, this is simply, in a sense, the end of the world. You know, we have killed civilization and life as we know it on Earth. And and they have this sort of dramatic um, scenario simply uh, to justify the net zero present approach. Things will not go like this. The day we are close to this, uh, anyone who has read the uh, Nobel laureate Paul uh, Kruggen 2003 uh, piece on uh, geoengineering knows that it is possible to stop, uh, to stop, not climate change, but to stop global warming at least for a few years by injecting sulfur or other things in, in the higher atmosphere. So there will be a number of countries, and it could be the U.S., but it could also be uh, Saudi Arabia or, or countries that are more at stake from from climate. It, it takes only a, a one or a handful of countries to inject things in their higher atmosphere, and of course, it is what will happen because you know it, it will be the way to to you know to to try to you know save uh, life as we know it, and of course. Then we will ask ourselves how can we remove this excess carbon that we have, and we will design in hurry, you know, policies that we should have been developing for years, and that are the natural complement of net zero. Net zero by itself is, is very little. It has to be net zero carbon removal and some form of geoengineering. At the end of the day, uh, you know, climate will be will be either out of hand or controlled by by man. And control is not just through uh, the white food behavior, it is through uh, also uh, carbon management.
0: It sounds like um, that that sulfur injection in the upper atmosphere sounds like a job for Elon Musk to take on.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I personally think this very remarkable person should be devoting less attention to Mars, which is not such a nice destination, uh, and more attention to you know what great technology and uh, assets could help do in, in 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 filling that huge gap in our climate strategy. You know, but again, I agree with the, the diagnosis that we we are in trouble uh, climate wise. I agree with the goal of stopping climate change, but I'm uh, very worried that the moralistic way in which we approach this. And and also the egocentric way in which we think that the world is a large Europe or a large uh, East Coast, uh, you know, are, are preventing us from um, developing the, the the proper measures uh, today and from being efficient in how we allocate resources toward these goals.
0: That's a terrific summary of of how you see this. And again, I guess it comes down to leadership and. Uh, I can't help but ask you how the debacle in Afghanistan now is, is playing out in Europe in terms of our, our, the, the leadership role of the U.S. How are we being perceived? Do you think this has an effect?
1: Well, today, for, you know, we, we live in the so-called post-modern, post-this, post-that uh, world. <laughs> and today, for the first time, I, I, I read in Le Mans that now we have entered the post-American world. Mm. and this is going to uh, be a very strong sentiment in in, uh, in europe uh you know everybody understands the complexity of the situation but uh, first of all there was strictly zero uh, coordination zero consultation uh and the the, the the scenario that we are in today is the scenario that nobody prepared for. It is a scenario in which the Afghan army uh uh I would not say collapsed, but simply did not fight. And they did not fight because there was not not because they are coward or anything, they did not fight because there was no meaning in fighting. And so we, we are now rushing, uh, you know, trying to, to make sense of a situation that that should have been one of the three or four scenarios for which uh, we should have prepared. And I think this is exactly what's going to happen with uh, climate. Today, you are forbidden from talking about, you know, it's politically incorrect to talk about how people, how countries and, and, uh, will react when climate really deteriorates and what they will do, how they will take their own safety in their, in their hands when this happens. And uh when I look at uh, Kabul today uh you know i see at, at, at the the very high cost at which this 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 um self this this excessive belief in one's own discourse in one's own uh, forecast uh, can can lead. So
0: we could be facing a Kabul moment in climate change. Yes,
1: I think there, there will be a, a, clim, a Kabul moment in climate, and uh, uh, you know, let us keep it uh, among ourselves. But I, I think we'll end up writing climate with a K as the first letter. <laughs>
0: Well, that's a, it's a, a dire but maybe realistic prognosis for the world. But I hope by listening to you that some of the, our audience will have a much better understanding of things like the Paris Agreement that is not an agreement and the realistic solutions change what everybody agrees on, but nobody agrees on. Thank you so much for for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, Albert, how how can our listeners hear more from you? Are, do you have any plans for a new book, or how can they keep in touch with your your thoughts?
1: Uh, well, I have produced a, a couple of th- things on these subjects, but they they were for the the French um, political foundation Fondatol, so they are unfortunately in, in French uh, and. You know it's it's very difficult to to take this sort of thought through um, academia today because you are easily classified as you know a climate skeptic when in fact you are not a skeptic, You are just skeptical about the moralistic uh, approach uh, around you. but its very difficult to be you know presenting such views. So I end up concentrating on my series. <laughs> <theory. laughs> this is a series that takes place the next century. And, you know, climate is solved somehow and we are dealing with something, you know, very different, which is the creation of, uh, the artificial creation of intelligent life. So this is what's keeping me, <laughs> that's what's keeping me still, uh, you know, uh, properly functioning uh, at a time when I, I think the knowledge, the, the, the when I think the, so much of the expertise is not focusing on, uh, you know, the issues that it should.
0: Albert, thank you for your insights and for joining us on the Hail Report. And thank you to the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, Managing Editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. Please visit our website to sign up for alerts about our next podcast. And don't forget to find us and contribute on Patreon and Substack. Thank you.